While a lot of people were focusing on the COVID outbreak this week, a record high number of Chinese warplanes entered Taiwan's air defense identification zone. A top China military expert at Stanford University, Oriana Schuyler Mastro, tells us why she thinks China could attack Taiwan within two years. Also, a Taiwanese company is looking to get emergency use authorization for its COVID vaccine. We'll tell you how the local standards compare with the U.S., the EU, and the WHO. And in Hashtag Taiwan, Leslie tells us about another pandemic hero. This is Taiwan Insider. This past week, for the first time, peace in the Taiwan Strait and China's growing military power was highlighted by the Group of Seven, or G7, and by NATO as U.S. President Joe Biden took his first trip to Europe to strengthen the Western alliance. Perhaps not by coincidence, on Tuesday, Taiwan saw a record high number of Chinese warplanes enter its air defense identification zone. Let's take a look. On June 15th, 28 Chinese warplanes made an incursion into southeastern Taiwan's air defense identification zone. That's the most Chinese planes to enter the zone since April 12th, when 25 Chinese planes flew close to Taiwan. The U.S.'s Ronald Reagan Carrier Strike Group entered the South China Sea on Monday, and some specialists say that's why China is ramping up its presence in the region. One expert says China, which claims Taiwan as part of its territory, is trying to send a message. Over the past few months, U.S. President Joe Biden has met with Japanese Prime Minister Yoshihide Suga and Korean President Moon Jae-in. Maintaining peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait was a primary talking point at both of those meetings. Earlier this week, the G7 summit also published a statement, which once again underscored the importance of peace in the Taiwan region. Military experts say that the Chinese government is having none of it, and its maneuvers around Taiwan show that. They say that Beijing feels threatened, and that's why it's flexing its might near Taiwan. Air Force Deputy Commander Zhang Yanting says that China's actions put pressure on Taiwan's eastern air defenses. He says that Taiwan's air force still has room for improvement. For example, Taiwan's missile defenses need upgrading if it is to successfully fend off an attack. Now, China's gray zone warfare on Taiwan is a global threat. I recently spoke with a top China military expert at Stanford University, Oriana Schuyler Mastro. She recently wrote an article for Foreign Affairs magazine about why she believes Beijing could attack Taiwan soon. She is also a strategic planner for the United States Air Force Reserve. She recently testified to the U.S. Congress that she believes China could attack Taiwan within two years. I asked her why she thinks so. I think a lot of uh, the wisdom that China would never want to risk a war with the United States is somewhat outdated. Uh, China, of course, of the 1990s, when we had the third Taiwan Strait crisis, uh, and the United States sailed two aircraft battle groups uh, in the vicinity of the Taiwan Strait, China backed down. But that was largely because it did not have the military power to persevere, and it also didn't have the economic and political power to protect itself from costs of use of force. 
That's no longer the case. Uh, China has basically embarked on a foreign policy strategy to ensure that countries, for the most part, would stay out of a Taiwan issue. And they've embarked on a very uh, impressive military reform campaign, which uh, for a component of it ended in 2020. And so now they do have the ability to take Taiwan by force. So this coupled with Xi Jinping's statements, which, which suggests that he would like to resolve the issue, sooner rather than later points to a change in my mind of China's emphasis away from peaceful reunification towards a policy of armed reunification. I also asked her what the U.S. and its allies could do to deter China. Well, we get into some maybe technical details, but one of the first things the United States needs to do is, is have more land-based missiles, probably in the second island chain. So a lot of people think that if the war is costly for China, they won't do it. I disagree with that. I think if China gets Taiwan, even if it costs them their Navy, they're willing to take that risk. And so I really think we need to focus on developing military capabilities designed to physically stop the Chinese from sailing across the strait. So something like having missile capabilities that you could saturate the strait with missiles would be sufficient to stop that type of amphibious uh, landing. So that's where I think uh, initially the focus should be. But I, I do think that if Xi Jinping thought that an attack on Taiwan could threaten China's rejuvenation, for example, if he thought that U.S. allies and partners would cut off trade ties indefinitely with Beijing if they attacked Taiwan, he wouldn't do it. Like China's trade, over 60 percent of it depends on the United States and its allies. Uh, the problem is that China has basically set up a foreign policy strategy to convince other countries that Taiwan is a unique case how China treats Taiwan should not be taken as indicative of you know, what type of country China is. Um, and so I think a lot of people within the Chinese government think, for the most part, countries will stay out. So we have to be able to signal that, no, the world after an attack on Taiwan will not be favorable towards Beijing. Now, what would a U.S.-China war over Taiwan look like? Well, this is what Mastro said. It completely depends on the scenario. So the U.S. military is far superior to the Chinese military, but wars are not won and lost on that alone. Uh, you know, the nearest part of the Taiwan Strait is 80 miles, right? China could possibly get to Taiwan, occupy Taiwan, sign a peace treaty with the government of Taiwan before the United States even gets there. And then it's going to be very difficult for U.S. president to fire on China if no war is currently ongoing. If for whatever reason, the United States gets adequate warning, is able to amass forces in the region, or if the war becomes protracted in some way, then you know I think the United States has the advantage. But Chinese strategists also know that. And that's why they're primarily designing campaigns for, for quick fait accompli victories. Wow. And what do you imagine that will look like? So Chinese, some Chinese sources have put that in a number of hours that they could take complete control of Taiwan in 100 hours, I've seen in some Chinese sources. There was a RAND game that estimated it more in a number of days uh, or at the high end in a number of weeks. Uh, but when it comes to planning major military operations, that could be, that's relatively quick. And, and it could be a lot longer before the United States can actually physically come to Taiwan, Taiwan's aid. And that's why it's so important that Taiwan is able to defend itself. I don't think anyone has the expectation that Taiwan can defeat the PRC. The question is, how long can Taiwan hold out to give the United States time to come to its aid? And, and even small increments, like an extra week or two, could, make, uh, the could be the difference between victory and defeat. Mm. Do you think that the U.S. would come to Taiwan to defend if China's back? I think that's what we think about most of the time. 
Oh, I think absolutely. I think that's something, you know, the big, the big question is, you know, if we have enough time to do what's necessary to achieve our goals, but you know, a lot of people who argue otherwise, it's, it's, it might also be a generational thing. You know, the U.S. military of today, these are people who have, who are, have volunteered and signed up that have a vision of the world that they're willing to sacrifice their lives to protect. This isn't, you know, Vietnam era America. Um, and so I, I do see very strong morale and very strong willingness in the United States to do, uh, you know, what is right. And so I have, I have uh, full confidence that that my country would come to the aid of, of Taiwan and to, to other allies and partners in the region. The question is, how costly is that going to be? Now, we talked in depth about the possibility of a Chinese attack on Taiwan. The whole interview is on Facebook and YouTube. Now, Taiwan's Air Force has not only been busy intercepting Chinese warplanes, it's also dealing with an outbreak. For the first time in 71 years, Taiwan's Air Force Combatant Command is going into lockdown. That's to make sure the base can maintain combat readiness. More than 300 Chinese warplanes have breached Taiwan's air defense identification zone between January and June this year. The combatant command is responsible for tracking and intercepting would-be attackers. Now with six staff members at the Air Force Combatant Command infected with COVID-19, officials are worried that if the virus spreads, it could compromise Taiwan's air defenses. The Air Force has set up a reserve command center in case primary command falters. Taiwan's Air Force says it's taking every step to maintain its integrity. People coming in and out of the facility are carefully tracked and strict controls are in place to keep COVID-19 out of the command center. Air Force Command says that its protocols are in line with the Central Epidemic Command Center's guidelines. Anyone entering the Reserve Command Center will need to produce a negative COVID-19 PCR test result taken within the three previous days. A specialist from the Taiwan Strategy Research Association says that it's important for the military to adapt in the face of new challenges. Whether it's microscopic droplets or 30-ton bombers, Taiwan's Air Force is ready to fend off all airborne attacks. Taiwan could have its first local vaccine by later this summer. That's if it gets emergency use authorization. Now, some people say they're concerned because the drug made by Medigen has only passed phase two trials. So how does Taiwan's process for authorization compare to other countries? Stash Butler reports. A year and a half after the COVID-19 pandemic began, and the world already has a number of vaccines to prevent the disease. In fact, there are precisely 17. That's the number of vaccines approved for use in at least one country somewhere in the world, according to McGill University's COVID-19 vaccine tracker. The decision to approve a medicine for emergency use is based on one thing. Do the benefits outweigh the risks? But there are no countries that have authorized all of those 17 vaccines, which tells us one thing. Approval standards vary. So what does it take to get a vaccine authorized? To keep things short, we'll look at the process in three organizations the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, the European Medicines Agency, and the World Health Organization. Then we'll look at Taiwan. First up is the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, or FDA. The vaccines they've currently authorized for emergency use are Pfizer-BioNTech, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson. The FDA's guidelines are fairly explicit. They want to see some results from a Phase 3 trial. That can be interim analysis from midway through Phase 3, at least two months after participants have been fully vaccinated. How about the European Medicines Agency? 
Well, they've authorized the same vaccines as the US FDA plus AstraZeneca. And they're a little less explicit about trial phases, but the results are pretty much the same. The agency says it wants results on efficacy, and at the moment, the only widely accepted way of doing that is through phase 3 trials. And the agency wants those trials to have at least 30,000 participants. That brings us to the World Health Organization, or WHO. Technically, the organization doesn't grant EUAs, but instead EULs, emergency use listings. Get one of those, and the WHO might distribute your vaccine as part of vaccine initiative COVAX. The WHO actually says phase 2b trials can be enough, but it does want data on efficacy. That said, the WHO does leave the door open for other ways of showing efficacy in the future, not just phase 3 trials. And that's using this thing, an immune correlate of protection. Which brings us nicely onto Taiwan. Taiwan's FDA says vaccines should prove they are as good or better than the AstraZeneca vaccine through a process called immunobridging. And what does that mean? Well, the idea is this. When you get vaccinated, your body reacts and produces antibodies. In theory, at least, the more antibodies you make, the more you're protected against the disease. So Taiwan is going to compare antibody levels in people who took the local vaccine, made by Medigen, and the AstraZeneca vaccine. Then, they'll use that to try and figure out how effective the Taiwanese vaccine will be. Now, the reason they're doing that is because running phase 3 trials is becoming more and more difficult as the world gets more vaccines. Part of the reason is because a lot of people would rather get an authorized vaccine than take part in a trial for one with unknown efficacy. That's why researchers around the world have been working on finding ways like this to get vaccines approved without slow and expensive phase 3 trials. So, does the amount of antibodies correlate to protection from the virus? Well, at least one scientific paper suggests for COVID it does. But the WHO has not yet drawn a conclusion. They say the data isn't clear enough yet. So as for Medigen's vaccine, it remains to be seen whether Taiwanese authorities are ahead of the curve or jumping the gun. Again, that was Taiwan Insider's Stash Butler. And of course, this is a very important story. So we'll be uh, following that and bringing you updates. Up next, hashtag Taiwan. This is Jia Yongjie, actress, model, show host, triathlete, and mother of three. If you're thinking, wow, it sounds like she can do it all, then you'd be correct. Taiwan's internet has recently given her another title, Queen of Prevention. Jia first ticked on my radar earlier this week when news surfaced that she assembled prominent public figures for a charity drive to donate 342 high-flow nasal cannulas, otherwise known as HFNCs, to hospitals all around Taipei and New Taipei City. What's an HFNC? Well, it turns out that they're actually a pretty big deal. They're high-end ventilators that are vital for fighting serious cases of COVID-19. Most notably, the machines allow COVID-19 patients with serious cases to eat, and they lower the risk of disease transmission to medical staff. Jia said she received a message from a friend saying medical staff desperately need HFNCs. The message says that public hospitals have trouble getting their hands on the machines because of complicated bidding processes. So Jia reached out to distributors in Taiwan and organized a drive to raise money to purchase the machines. Each one of the machines cost around 9,000 US dollars, which puts the value of Jia's donation at around 3 million US dollars. That's a lot of cheddar, but that's not where this story ends. It wasn't until that I read up on this story further that I realized just how deep this thing goes. 
The HFNCs are just a small part of a massive campaign to donate goods to medical workers. Jia Yongjie has been at it since June 1st. And by at it, I mean she's been coordinating donations to hospitals. The donations come in the form of equipment or food and they're often sponsored by other public figures or businesses in Taiwan. For example, this is what her organization did on June 14th, which was Dragon Boat Festival, a national holiday. That day, her organization donated 70 of the 342 promised HFNCs to hospitals all around Taipei. At 4 p.m., they delivered snacks to Taipei Renai Hospital. At 11 p.m., they donated snacks to Taiwan Adventist Hospital. At 11.30 p.m., they donated more snacks to Cathay General Hospital. Then, at 12 a.m., they donated even more snacks to McKay Memorial Hospital. Jia said that medical workers don't get a break for Dragon Boat Festival, so there's no reason why she should get one either. She goes into detail about the 4pm delivery at Renai Hospital. Actress Alice Ko helped deliver goods. She donated 250 pastries, while actress Vivian Xu sponsored 100 boxed meals. And a few restaurants also donated coffee and even more food. And that's just contributions to one hospital on one day. Personally, I am overwhelmed by Jia's generosity. She publishes updates about her donations on Facebook, showing which businesses and public figures donated their time and money. Jia isn't the only one making a difference. Taiwanese model Ling Ziling donated 6 mobile COVID-19 testing booths, while the band Mayday donated 66 oxygenators to help fight the disease. For the first time ever, the words star power have given me pause. Just knowing that entertainers and public figures are out there using their money and influence for such a great cause, and on such a massive scale, makes me think about what I can do for frontline medical workers. And I know that if it's making me feel this way, then I'm not the only one. Before we leave you today, let's take a look at some of the other stories on our radar. Taiwan's COVID-19 outbreak is slowing down. The R number, or reproduction number, has dropped to 0.46. That means that each infected person is infecting less than one other person. In mid-May, Taiwan was reporting over 500 new cases each day. But recently, there's been a string of days with fewer than 200 new cases. Epidemiologist Dr. Chen Xiaoxi even says that Taiwan could see its level 3 alert restrictions loosen up soon. Taiwan and the U.S. say they are committed to restarting trade talks under the Trade and Investment Framework Agreement, or TIFA. The two sides signed the agreement in 1994, but have not used it to hold talks since 2016. Senior citizens aged 75 and over can now get a COVID-19 jab in Taiwan. Given the limited supply of vaccine doses, some local governments are giving priority to those 80 and over. A number of venues have adopted a system developed in Japan in which senior citizens stay seated while medical staff move around vaccinating them. Alright, final question of the day. What is one thing you miss about life before the level 3 restrictions began on May 15th? Andrew. All right, the one thing I would miss is chilling, and I'm talking about sitting down with friends without masks on, maybe having a drink, and just chatting. I do too. Leslie? All right, guys, without a doubt, I miss my friends, all right? My pals, my amigos, my tomodachis, and I still keep in touch with them over the phone, but it's just not the same when you can go out and hang out with them. And you realize how easy it is to be starved for social interaction when the most words you let out in a day is at your TV. So when we get out of this level three alert, I can't wait to get together with my friends. 
Me too. And I also miss swimming. I would love to go for a swim right now. Thanks for tuning in to Taiwan Insider. I'm Natalie So. I'm Andrew Ryan. Take care, guys. And I'm Leslie Liao reminding you to drink water. Be sure to follow us on social media and leave a comment below. We'd love to hear from you. See you next week. Taiwan Today with Natalie So. Hello and welcome to Taiwan Today. I am Natalie So. Taiwan has been dealing with its worst outbreak since the pandemic began. Ever since May 15th, we've seen cases in the triple digits. Now that's a lot for Taiwan, and so we're under a soft lockdown. And today we continue to hear from a top epidemiologist here in Taiwan, Dr. He Mei Sheng, who is also a professor of biomedical sciences at Taiwan's leading research institute, Academia Sinica. Now, vaccines have been on people's minds as Taiwan has a shortage of vaccines, and the local vaccine has just finished its phase two trial. Now, I asked Dr. Ho of all the vaccines available in Taiwan, AstraZeneca, the local vaccine, and Moderna, which one she prefers. I have to say because I had participated in the vaccine trial, so I had been administered two doses of one of the two local vaccines. Oh, okay. The, the reason why, because they have been announcing again and again that there is a shortage of uh, participants, subjects over 65 years of age. So I just uh, gather my me and myself and with all my. You're not over 65, are you? Well, I'm over 65, so we no, I can't them. believe that. You look so young. So we just young. help them to get their numbers, you know, basically that's the situation. Good or bad, you need to have numbers to know it's good or bad. And the earlier we know it's good or it's bad, the better off we are. So that's the situation. So with no presumption of whether it's good or bad, we just participate in it. <laughs> it's hard to believe you're over 65. You look so young. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> So would you suggest that um, people take whatever vaccine that's available to them? What are your suggestions in terms of vaccines? Personally, if there is a choice, I would, I would say the AZ vaccine, the younger, younger female, you know, should stay away from that if there is a choice, of course. What is younger so, mean? What age is younger? Uh, different countries with different standard, I believe uh, previously, I cannot match the country to the number of us like Germany and uh, Switzerland or whatever. They were sitting at 60 or 65. And I know previously the Koreans sat at 30. One thing one must know that the, the concern is something called um, cerebral uh, venous thrombosis. And that generally we know for the reasons we don't know, but we know that the Asian population is has a lower risk for acquiring such disease. So, but still, we are very concerned about that. And even though the instance is like, oh, it's like a million. If you administer a million doses, you may get four. You know, four. four. Is that the blood clots that people have been talking about? Yeah, that's the blood clots. Yes, yes. And, and so uh, younger female try to stay away from that, if possible. But at this moment, because of our shortage of vaccine and the, our government or 
it's not advising that just administer and so far seem to be no problem. We have no reported cases yet. I heard that women who are taking uh, supplements, hormone supplements, should get off those supplements before they take the AstraZeneca vaccine. Is that correct? I'm not aware of that. I'm, okay. I'm, I read that in the news. It's possible. It's possible, but I'm not aware of the details of it. Yeah. Mm. So you're actually vaccinated then, right? You're fully yeah. vaccinated. We don't know because I may be in the placebo group, but I don't <laughs> think I am. Because from my reaction, I have a little local reaction. I do know another person uh, went with me. She had no reaction at all. None. So what was your reaction? Uh, just on the second dose, uh, local side with swelling, hot, hard, a little pain, you know. And, and that, how long did that last? Uh, three days. Three days. Yeah, so, three days. I consider it's a really quite severe reaction because it's hard and red. It's hard, red, hot, you know, just on the, the arm side that. The, the administration side, but I think it's okay. I just stopped playing tennis or, you know, I just let it rest <laughs> for a few days, yeah. So how is your life now that we're under level three and you're also vaccinated? So how has life changed for you? Are you it's leading because, more or less a normal life because you're vaccinated or? Of course, everything, you know, a lot of interview, a lot of uh, conferences, a lot of meetings, we just, you know, connected from home. But still, I go out quite a bit because I um, I get on the media and get on the televisions, etc. So, and also just not to, we try to minimize any extra problems. So like our colleagues in Academia Sinica, everyone's practice is that even though we come to work, we see each other, but we wave in distance, we just don't have social interaction, we just work, we don't eat together, etc. Just so, not so much that we are afraid that we will be contracted with the disease, but we are afraid we will be quarantined for 14 days, just if uh, we are in contact. That's more likely, right? Yeah, more, that's more likely. So that's currently, that's a situation that we try to not create all these problems, you know, so we Really, really, with as little interaction as possible. Whatever you want to do, telephone call and telecommunication, etc., would serve the purpose. So, yeah. how long do you think it will take before Taiwan can go back to normal? I would say until we fully vaccinated, about at least fifty percent of the people are vaccinated. So it would be quite some time, but hopefully we don't have to upgrade our level of alertness. You know, hopefully we are able to maintain what's essential and um, activity and then to cut down just the leisure, the non-essential ones, we, we cut it out. So just tolerate a little bit, it will, it will go away. I think we're gonna do okay in Taiwan. We've done so well um, the whole, during the whole year and a half but all of a sudden this came out, so we're kind of, you know, anxious here. Now the world is getting vaccinated. How long do you think it will take for the world to get back to normal? Well, whether U.S. and Europe, they are trying to get back to normal, you know, so they, they have their green, the European EU people, they have their green pass, they, they open up their tourism, and, but uh, the rest of the world, 
was still another season until everyone's fully vaccinated. I would think that pretty much through next next year. For the major part of the Northern Hemisphere, we have to pass our winter, you know, so that will be through next spring to be fully normal. But uh, with US and Europe, they are opening up. So, you know, they're going to just lead the way to some. So it, it, just like I say, epidemic would go on its pace, but at a different pace, at different place. And then, you know, everyone will be affected at different pace. But we are aiming towards the same direction, just sooner or later, depends on where you are. And the price is how much you suffer. <laughs> well, I'm looking to the future as well. I mean, how can we prevent having future em- epidemics with different viruses? I'm sure we've all learned a lot. The world has learned so much this time. This this is such an interesting question. You know, me as a medical doctor trained in the public health, and the public health people are so, we are so, how do I say? I don't know what's the right term for that. We are so, each time when there's a pandemic, we will come back and reflect to say we didn't prepare enough, we didn't do enough, etc. And then again and again, we always say that. Until very recently, I think until 2003, after um, 2003, SARS, right? SARS, and also um, that was after several bouts of H5N1 and H5NX, you know, sort of expanding the avian sort of flew through the, the world. So we began to think that, is there a way we can stop the pandemic from the source? And actually, there being effort, basically US initiated, they they have the they support, you know, they provide the budget and the funding to say, if we do surveillance to the wild animals, we, you know, etc. Just they've done a lot of work and in part, the uh, Wuhan laboratory th- that had been working on coronaviruses in part was funded by US um, that through that big sort of funding. So this is something, of course, will be continued. Previously, Trump, President Trump cut the budget immediately last year, the middle of the last year, it was initiated again. And also, Aside from from the budget, I think there are people we are beginning to think about that the practices, you know, because you if you think about what really is happening, it's all about food safety in a local site. You know, uh, a lot of people say that this is our sort of culinary practices. We've been eating these wildlife and this is something the exotic, whatever we've been eating and we have no problems. Well, that's true. You had no problems in the past. You had no metropolitan uh, cities. You have no air travel. You have no big hospitals located in this place. These are all conditions conducive for this type of new um, infectious disease to to transmit. So we have to think about how to implement sort of regulation of food safety, slaughtering, etc. So this is something people will be talking about, I think, in the very near future. And ensure because every time we go back to China, we will notice that actually the law was there. They had prohibited something, but they would allow people to continue to practice. It's something very you know, just uh, unfortunately, there's, yeah, there's a gap. Yeah, there's a gap between 
what's the law and what's being practiced. Well, Dr. Hood, thank you so much for speaking with me. Is there, are there any last um, words you would like to tell people in Taiwan and throughout the world as they continue to face the pandemic? Well, I would like to say that just hang in there, keep healthy. A healthy body can prevent all diseases. Mm. So it's important and how to keep healthy, especially now we are all staying at home, still try to keep active, doing something, push up, um, whatever, and eat healthy. Don't binge away with sweets. <laughs> it's important. It's really important. And if necessary, um, take some vitamin supplements so that keep your nutritional level at optimal level etc. These are all very important and be um, to stay you know in a good mood and don't worry. <laughs> Knowing that we will pass, we would of course we will win the battle. Are there any particular things that you suggest we eat a lot of that will help our immune system? Well I cannot say one thing but see a lot of people in the young people they eat sweets and they eat just the meat. But, you know, you need to have fruit, vegetables, but if you really cannot take that, take vitamins. <laughs> but fibers is very important. So it's really just important to have a balanced diet. If you can't take supplements, really for the time being, take supplements. Well, Dr. He, it's been wonderful speaking with you. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. Thank you, Natalie. Thank you. I've been speaking with Dr. He, a top epidemiologist here in Taiwan, about the current outbreak. The Sound of the Puyuma Tribe on Radio Taiwan International. For all your science and tech news, it's Stash Butler with The Download. Welcome to The Download, a brand new show from Radio Taiwan International, covering all the latest developments in science and technology. I'm your host, Dash Butler, and I'll be taking you through everything you need to know. 
Today, I continue my conversation with Dr. Eric Helmer from Academia Sinica about the plastics industry in Taiwan. He tells me how plastics are bringing the U.S. and Taiwan closer together and that not much has changed under President Biden. All that coming up on The Download. I asked Eric what he thought the solution to our plastic problem was. It is a really difficult question, and I certainly know, you know, don't uh, believe I have a, a solid answer for that. But you know, if we want to, if we want to, you know, eliminate these problems that we're talking about in terms of environmental harm, um, you know, and, and there's also health-related issues uh, as well. Um, if we want to really eliminate that, the only way to eliminate that is to get rid of plastics. But on the flip side, that's not an option for us as a, as a modern society, right? You know, we look at just the 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 COVID nineteen pandemic. So much of what what uh, provides for treatment and care of this disease and and diseases in general, it comes from plastics. You know, everything from clean syringes and and vials uh, for vac- vaccines to face masks and gloves and you know the transportation vessels that uh, are carrying them. Everything has plastics in it. So. The real solution would be to create a, 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 a truly circular economy where, where all the plastics that we have out there, we turn back into, uh, you know, something that's, that's, that's of high value to, to both, you know, producers economically and to society as, as something that we can use. I, I don't think that that's 100% realistic, uh, but I think there's a lot of work being done out there by a lot of people pushing to get us as close to that as possible. And, and what we really need is to find ways for governments and, and industry to really take up that challenge a lot more seriously. So speaking of the government, what's Taiwan doing as a country to you know take steps to mitigate this and, and, and ultimately work towards that goal of net zero by 2050? Yeah, so the main steps that the government here is taking in terms of of meeting those carbon reduction goals is in the energy sector and and to be fair here as well as elsewhere that accounts for the vast majority of of carbon emissions so when we talk about carbon emissions we, we, we talk about you know you have sort of three different levels of emissions that you can measure and the first one is the the direct thing right like are you burning a fuel to make that product so the second level is okay what fuels were burned in producing electricity to get that thing right and and electricity is behind everything so the problem that taiwan faces is that over 90 percent of its fuel is is imported from abroad and 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 most of its energy is uh, coming from fossil fuels right so the, the government is is really pushing to rapidly increase the amount and types of renewables including becoming you know a, a leader in in offshore wind farming and and that's where they're really focusing their energy in terms of plastics you know we've seen these kinds of plastic bands that have become really popular globally but there hasn't been any real significant curbing of the petrochemical industry here in taiwan that's a little bit uh, more difficult obviously to regulate but that in particular is not something the government has really focused on so reading about Formosa Plastics, you know, talking about it being the kind of the sixth largest company in the petrochemicals industry, and it's got these plants all over the world, including a lot in the U.S. So how is this industry, or in what way is this industry binding Taiwan and the U.S. together? 
Yeah, that's a that's that's a one of those difficult to measure kind of questions. But in if you want to look at it uh, in, in numerical terms, uh, the U.S. And, and Saudi Arabia are the largest oil suppliers to Taiwan, and they also uh, supply Taiwanese petrochemical manufacturers with uh, a lot of feedstocks. Right, so there are definitely relationships in terms of trade relationships that that bring Taiwan, I think, and the U.S. closer together there. On the other side of that, you know, one of the main export markets or the main export market for for chemicals and plastics coming out of this industry is China. So it's an industry that that really bridges Taiwan and the rest of the world in in a way that I think it, when you get to know this kind of industry, it's it's pretty obvious. Right. Like I said, it's a very vertically integrated kind of industry. You know, it, it and the way that it works is everything downstream really depends on these chemicals upstream so when you have facilities like uh, formosa plastics six naphtha cracker or all of the 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 six naphtha crackers or i think five now operating in taiwan combined you know they're producing a, a substantial amount of chemicals that countries all over the world are looking for you also look internally in taiwan how many hundreds and hundreds of manufacturing firms and tens of thousands of jobs depend on turning these these chemicals and these plastics into into products and and using those 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 plastics uh, to, to to make a company you know to to have a, a bubble tea shop to have all of these things and of course that has huge impacts on on Taiwan relative to the rest of the world as well. So speaking of America again, I was reading that in 2020, well 2020 was a very critical year in a sense because in the states we had dozens of these naphtha crackers, these, essentially these plastic factories. Uh, waiting for approval or, you know, having been approved and waiting to start construction. Now, that was under President Trump, the previous president. H- how have things changed under Biden or, or have they changed under Biden? So far, uh, things in terms of the petrochemical expansion don't appear to have changed too much. And again, actually, when I look at what's happening so far in that area, it, it can be a bit of a both worlds, right? So first of all, that, that build-out that you're talking about in the U.S., uh, that, that goes back quite a bit longer than from the Trump administration, right? It's, uh, it's based on the uh, discovery and exploitation of, of the fracking technology in the United States. And uh, what that's done is, you know, just f- sort of flooded the U.S. with cheap uh, natural gas. And uh, that, in terms of the petrochemical sector, is producing a ton of what's called ethane, right? So here in Taiwan, it's mostly naphtha, which is derived from crude oil that's broken down into these chemicals. But you can also do a similar kind of process with ethane from natural gas. So it's it's a very, like I said, globalized industry. You have firms like Formosa Plastic, but also the main uh, European, Japanese firms are, are, are all expanding or establishing plants in the U.S. because it's all based on the price of these base chemicals. So if, if you can get cheap ethane rather than cheap oil, then it makes sense to invest in these new kind of plants. And, you know, in the U.S., it's, it's, it's a lot of it is, is based on state-level uh, government incentives as well. So most of these plants are located in the, in the Gulf area in Texas and Louisiana. And uh, those governments have, have, have very strongly supported these industries for a very long time. And so in a lot of ways, it's, it's more difficult, I think, in the U.S. for the national 
level government to really control these things. But uh, even with the pipelines and things like that, some of those policies came from the Trump administration, but they have been sort of stuck with under the Biden administration. So again, it's not one of these things that is, is changing too hugely immediately. Most of the focus in these, uh, in these new climate change initiatives being established by that administration, most of those are looking again at the energy and the transportation sectors. So as I said, that kind of creates this, this, this bit of a, a paradox, right, where it's pushing more and more oil companies to want to invest in petrochemical production, right? Because they're losing those, those traditional money makers. They know that's happening. They see the writing on the wall. It's very clear. Yet there isn't so much pushback because of this dependency that we have globally as, as, as a human modern society on plastics. It's not, a, it's not a secret that this is where they're expecting market expansion and growth in the future. That was Dr. Eric Helmer from Academia Sinica telling me the push against plastics is largely missing from global climate initiatives. And that's all we have time for. Join me, Stash Butler, next week for another episode of The Download. year and a half after the COVID-19 pandemic began and the world already has a number of vaccines to prevent the disease. In fact, there are precisely 17. That's the number of vaccines approved for use in at least one country somewhere in the world, according to McGill University's COVID-19 vaccine tracker. The decision to approve a medicine for emergency use is based on one thing. Do the benefits outweigh the risks? But there are no countries that have authorized all of those 17 vaccines, which tells us one thing approval standards vary. So what does it take to get a vaccine authorized? To keep things short, we'll look at the process in three organizations, the US Food and Drug Administration, the European Medicines Agency, and the World Health Organization. Then we'll look at Taiwan. First up is the US Food and Drug Administration, or FDA. The vaccines they've currently authorized for emergency use are Pfizer-BioNTech, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson. The FDA's guidelines are fairly explicit, they want to see some results from a phase three trial. That can be interim analysis from midway through phase three, at least two months after participants have been fully vaccinated. How about the European Medicines Agency? Well, they've authorized the same vaccines as the US FDA, plus AstraZeneca. And they're a little less explicit about trial phases, but the results are pretty much the same. The agency says it wants results on efficacy. And at the moment, the only widely accepted way of doing that is through phase three trials. And the agency wants those trials to have at least 30,000 participants. That brings us to the World Health Organization, or WHO. Technically, the organization doesn't grant EUAs, but instead EULs, emergency use listings. Get one of those, and the WHO might distribute your vaccine as part of vaccine initiative COVAX. The WHO actually says phase 2B trials can be enough, but it does want data on efficacy. That said, the WHO does leave the door open for other ways of showing efficacy in the future, not just phase three trials. And that's using this thing, an immune correlate of protection. Which brings us nicely onto Taiwan. Taiwan's FDA says vaccines should prove they are as good or better than the AstraZeneca vaccine through a process called immunobridging. And what does that mean? 
Well, the idea is this. When you get vaccinated, your body reacts and produces antibodies. In theory, at least, the more antibodies you make, the more you're protected against the disease. So Taiwan is going to compare antibody levels in people who took the local vaccine, made by Medigen, and the AstraZeneca vaccine. Then, they'll use that to try and figure out how effective the Taiwanese vaccine will be. Now, the reason they're doing that is because running phase three trials is becoming more and more difficult as the world gets more vaccines. Part of the reason is because a lot of people would rather get an authorized vaccine than take part in a trial for one with unknown efficacy. That's why researchers around the world have been working on finding ways like this to get vaccines approved without slow and expensive phase three trials. Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 9405 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 9405 kHz. And in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International.